0: Welcome to the FDD events podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events.
1: Good morning. It's Wednesday, February 21st. The war in the Middle East is now 138 days old. I'm Jonathan Schanzer, Senior Vice President for Research here at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. This is not your everyday program. Actually, it's an every other day program. But just so we're clear, our goal is to summarize the most pressing news out of the Middle East before you're done drinking your coffee. And guess what? We do it in just 20 minutes. Fine, sometimes it's 23 minutes, but you know what I mean. If you like the brevity and if you like the substance, then please do keep tuning in. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from military analyst John Spencer. John has done some groundbreaking work on the IDF, how it operates pursuant to the laws of war, and what it has achieved over the last four months. But before we speak to John, let's talk about those 1.4 million Palestinians now sheltering in the town of Rafah in southern Gaza. We all know IDF ground maneuvers have swept north to south. This has pushed civilians south to the town of Rafah, which is the last bastion of Hamas control in Gaza. For Israel to defeat Hamas, those Gazans need to move. And right now, it's not entirely clear how that's going to happen. Here's what can't happen. Confusion. Here's what else can't happen. A major battle with 1.4 million Palestinians serving as human shields for Hamas. And here's what really can't happen. A humanitarian crisis during Ramadan, which starts in a few short weeks. That's a recipe for chaos. Bottom line, Israel needs a plan for moving Gazans out of Rafah, a good plan. The majority will need to head north. Israel is preparing to take care of them along the Gaza coast, but some may be unable or unwilling. I firmly believe that Egypt should take in some Gazans temporarily. And to that end, the Sisi regime recently set up an area to house an estimated 100,000 displaced persons along the border. That's good. But it may not end there. The Israelis might have to take in some refugees, too. And I know this won't sit well with the current government or the Israeli public, for that matter. Any Gazan entering Israel would require some serious vetting. But it may not be a bad thing for Israel to show the rest of the world how serious it is about saving lives. No matter how it all goes down, let me be clear about one thing. The IDF will only defeat Hamas if it does so in Rafah. And that battle cannot occur without solving for the relocation of 1.4 million people. This is high drama, folks. The fate of this war hangs in the balance. And right now, the clock is ticking. Now for your headlines. Headline one, the IDF now says it has killed uh, 12,000 Hamas fighters since the war began. So let's do the math. 12,000 Hamas KIAs, plus another 10,000 injured to the point that they cannot return to the battlefield, plus another 2,500 arrested. That brings us to, let's do the math, to 24,500 Hamas fighters that can no longer fight. So that means only 6,500 of the original 30,000 remain. Translation, the IDF is making real progress. But this brings us back to Rafa. Not all of the remaining Hamas fighters are waiting there, but it's a good bet that a majority are preparing for this showdown. And this brings us back to the imperative of removing those civilians. If this is the final chapter, Israel knows it cannot allow a humanitarian crisis to overshadow what could be a major victory. Headline two, Qatar said yesterday that it would be sending medicine to the hostages in Gaza. Sounds good, right? Well, not really. You know what happened last time? After all the negotiating and the minutiae with Qatar, the medicine never actually made it to the hostages. The IDF found that medicine with the names of hostages sitting in a trash bin during a raid on the Al Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. So let me say it again. Qatar is not an ally it's not even a frenemy. It's a Hamas patron, and it doesn't care about the hostages. If you don't believe me, just ask the Qatari prime minister who literally said on Monday that the regime wants to end the war without a hostage deal. Not surprisingly, the Israelis chafed at this. Diaspora minister Amichai Shikli hammered the regime for this on social media. The regime in Doha fired back, In short, we may finally be witnessing the demise of the Qatari negotiating channel. If so, good riddance. And headline three, China's ambassador to the UN took a shot at the United States yesterday for vetoing the Algerian resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. First of all, with all the criticism I've shared here on the FTD morning brief about the Biden White House policies, this move should be lauded. Of course, I still have my concerns in other areas like waning American deterrence, like scoring political points by dunking on Israel. More on that for another show. But here's the thing about China. Before the war, Beijing was hot to trot on Israel, hoping to tap into that startup nation stuff that Israel does so well. My FDD colleagues and I warned the Israelis that Beijing was not a friend. I'm not here to say I told you so. I'm pretty sure the Israelis see it all clearly now, but the China account is going to have to be settled sooner or later. For now, other things are pressing. Okay, it's now my pleasure to present to you John Spencer. John is a retired US Army officer. He is currently the Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute, and he's co-director of the Urban Warfare Project. He's put out some fascinating fascinating research lately.
0: Welcome, John Spencer. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me.
1: Let me ask you, one of your tweets got my attention recently, where you actually went into one of the tunnels or maybe several tunnels in Gaza, and you noted some of the similarities and differences between some of the other tunnels, combat tunnels
0: that you've been in.
1: You want to unpack that a little bit for us?
0: Sure. And I also wrote an article about this um, where I give all the details, right? Because I don't just, I try not to just to to give those quotable things, but back it up with all the evidence and research that I've been doing for years on tunnels. But yes, I was recently in Gaza in the tunnel, actually the largest one that they've found that Hamas built right outside the, the Israel-Gaza border um, near the Erez humanitarian crossing that for me, once I went into it, gave me a lot of feelings of the north korean tunnel that i visited on the south korean side of course although they take you right down to the crossing point which is an invasion tunnel just these massive tunnels which you could drive cars and, and flow thousands of soldiers into and that one in Irez or near the irez crossing felt very close to that although it actually had more sophisticated um air ventilation power phone wires and also while i was in it even had a, a steel uh frame construction really advancements in tunnel building technologies because there are varieties of handmade tunnels versus you know what we call deep buried military dug tunnels and how many millions of dollars that one tunnel that I was in in Gaza and how different it was to the to all the tunnels that we are seeing as well underneath uh Gaza so that's really the biggest difference in the tunnels is that Hamas spent really decades building tunnels for military purposes which isn't new there's vast tunnels in north korea and china but to build them only underneath civilian areas is very unique to war in general
1: yeah you know it's funny i, I was uh, at that i think it was probably the same major tunnel complex on the south korea side a few years ago and there have been some questions raised about whether maybe the North Koreans were involved in building these tunnels. I mean, do you think this was
0: all um, local work by Gazans or do you think they got a lot of help? No, I, I think they got a lot of help. Um, I think early on in Hamas's tunnel interest to include the smuggling tunnels along the Gaza-Egypt border, that it was really handmade kind of things. But now that they're shown... And what we've seen, too, uh, so far in this war is just very advanced engineering that will require outside help, whether it's North Koreans, Iranians or others. uh, But you could not have done that, you know, just watching YouTube clips on how to dig tunnels. Yeah, I've never
1: seen a YouTube clip on how to build a tunnel. Um, But let me ask you about another issue that you've been out front on. You've written quite a bit about hospitals and their role in Uh, urban warfare. Now, during this war, we've seen a number of uh, Gaza hospitals um, play a significant role in the headlines, right? The al ahli hospital early on, the one that uh, Islamic Jihad inadvertently bombed. Then there was the Shifa hospital. This is the major operations center now confirmed by the New York Times recently after maybe not admitting it for several months. But we now know that Chifa played a major role there in Gaza City. And now we've got this uh, flap over the Nasser Hospital, uh, which is in central southern Gaza. This is just it's I mean, the the hits keep on coming here as it relates to hospitals. What is the rule uh, pursuant to the laws of war about what can or can't be done by uh, an invading army uh, like Israel uh, responding to attacks. And, and what are the rules for organizations like Hamas? What can they or cannot
0: they do? So yeah, I just submitted a piece on this because it's continued to gain international attention is the hospitals in war in general, and how they have a unique role as in they have unique protections, not only the hospitals themselves, but the medical staff, the wounded, are all protected. And the number one rule is that combatants should not use them as human shields and how Hamas has done that to every hospital the IDF has basically come in, into contact with in Gaza. Hamas has used it for weapon storage, shot from it, uh, has taken hostages there, held hostages there, used as command centers, like you said, in the Al-Shifa underneath it. I mean, it's just a long list of every hospital in Gaza. Hamas, like other terrorist organizations in the United States, faced this in the wars in Iraq, um, to include the ones against ISIS, where these combatants who do not follow the laws of war will purposely use those laws and specifically hospitals because of the uniqueness and the emotion evoking They do deserve to be protected, but they can't become untouchable, and this is what I say in my article, or combatants that continue not to follow the laws of war continue to use them and put hospitals and everything in them at greater and greater risk. So the rules on what you can do if an enemy is using them to basically as an act of harm against the attacking force are also very prescriptive in the Geneva Conventions and the laws of armed conflict. Um, the combatant or the one who is approaching the hospital has to give a warning to the enemy to stop using it and against, against the laws of war, stop using it for military purposes. But usually if, you know, if you're taking fire from it, the, uh, the actions that you take are, and again, with the law of war, necessity, proportionality. But in this case, you can also see where Israel is, again, going above and beyond all of the, the law of armed conflict, of, even in the complexity of this situation. How to secure a hospital, give warning, assist with evacuations, do everything possible to limit the harm to civilians in the hospital, while also moving forward to search the hospital, to remove the enemy forces from it so it can be restored to active use. And that's really what you've seen from Al Shifa to even Al Nasser to keep it running and then get it back up to running to full case so they've taken a, a unique things. And I know we may talk about how they even be mentioned in the ICJ case that they should be protected, uh, but they can't be like a safe haven. Or we'll see this happen in every war from here on out. Right. I mean, what
1: happens here, certainly Hezbollah is going to learn from it, you know, because we certainly expect uh, a uh, a battle at some point between Hezbollah and Israel. And I'm sure they're watching very carefully But let me ask you, you know, you said that Israel has gone above and beyond on that. I mean, I've seen your work on the civilian casualty count. And this, of course, has been a major source of friction between Israel and the United States, Israel and a bunch of other countries that have claimed that Israel has not done enough to safeguard uh, civilians and to prevent civilian casualties. You make a very different case here, specifically when you compare what Israel's been doing in Gaza to some of the wars that America has fought in places like Iraq
0: and Afghanistan. Want to unpack that for us? Sure. So I wrote two pieces because I just kept seeing, as somebody who's researched, for, researched this for over a decade, I kept seeing these false narratives of most destructive, most casualty producing, everything about, about this war. One is that there is no comparison to, even to anything that the United States has done post-World War II really, and we can go back to comparisons because people want those mental models. But also, even in the modern era of when given the context that Israel has faced, although no military in the history of war really has faced this level of tunnels underneath civilian areas, hostages being held, rockets being launched from the combat area, the proximity to the existential threat. I mean, there is no comparison. That was really a big point, but I back that up with facts. And if you try to compare, let's say, one battle like the Battle of Mosul, which a lot of people were doing in 2016 and 17, the numbers just don't add up to Israel doing anything more destructive or more casualty producing. It's actually the inverse. Given the context of the the complexity of the dense urban fight, where you have an embedded enemy and the scale of the enemy. So in that Battle of Mosul, there were 3,000 to 5,000 ISIS fighters who had, for two years had built a defensive network in Mosul, and it took 100,000 Iraqi security forces backed by the United States and a coalition air power of immense capabilities. It took them nine months destroying most of the city and killing 10,000 civilians. But here's the problem, John, that I have with the casualty counts, is that for the first time that I've studied war, people are trying to use the combatant to civilian ratio as some evidence of, of basically a law of war violation or moral equivalency of whether the operation should continue. I've never seen that in war. So I actually don't like to go down that road. Although if you do the numbers, if you take the Hamas numbers, although that's a new one in war too, I've never seen a war or an urban battle where anyone, let alone the enemy like Hamas, can give you a daily running civilian casualty count down to the single digit. I mean, it was a year after the Battle of Mosul and the Iraqi government still did not know how many civilians had died in that battle because it's just not the way it works. You you can't have that fidelity. But let's say we took the Hamas numbers. Yes, the civilian casualties, which are usually 90% of the casualties in modern wars. So that's a terrible statistic. But even given that number, what Israel has done Is historic as in the low civilian casualty to the 30,000 combatants that they're fighting, which no military has faced that scale inside of an urban area dug in like this. It's really interesting how the, again, there's three things that I, you know, three types of lies lies, damn lies, and statistics is that people are looking for any statistic that would make this look like it was something comparable. It's not, or that Israel hasn't taken these unique civilian harm mitigation steps, which are historic as well. And I did that in another article showing that even when the U.S. military faced a small version of these type of challenges, like in the First and Second Battle of Fallujah, which were the the biggest urban battle of the Iraq War, or the biggest urban battle since World War II, Battle of Mosul 2016, that the level of civilian harm mitigation steps waiting to go into the environment calling dropping flyers calling everybody handing out your military maps israel is setting a standard that i i actually fear at this point will be hard to replicate because there's no us force or a coalition force that i know of that has that capability to put thousands of soldiers on phones calling into an environment to handing out our military maps and telegraphing every place that we're going to be in that urban environment it's a standard that will be hard to replicate but for some reason that That isn't palatable to people who haven't watched wars at all, let alone just the wars in the Middle East. All
1: right. Last question for you here. I want to just ask you broadly, how do you think Israel has performed in all this? I mean, I think we're picking up here that Israel has gone above and beyond. It's preserved as many civilian lives as possible. It's doing impossible things. Uh, in hospitals, but I mean, I've heard Israeli uh, uh, military uh, types tell me that this war is unprecedented in the sense that Israel is now trying to tackle something like 500 miles of tunnels beneath the ground and also fighting a brutal urban war above ground. Do you agree with that assessment? Are there other things that we can point to here about what the IDF is facing? Uh, Absolutely.
0: And the hostages, and the global international condemnation, because all war is a contest of will, and Israel had to balance the international community's will as they were doing what everybody, to include me, thought was impossible. I, as somebody, is one of the few people who's studied this type of combat for years. I thought Israel would lose thousands of soldiers. It would take months it took 9 months to clear one city and Israel is facing basically seven massive city fights. I thought it would take months just to clear Gaza City. By every metric to include civilian casualties, what Israel has done is historic as in in its effectiveness. While the pictures don't show that and if you want to see pictures of any urban battle and where cities look like they're completely destroyed, it's the reality. But by every metric, I it is historic as in, in comparison to every urban battle that's ever happened in history. What Israel has done against the context of the mission, the size of the enemy, the tunnels, which I thought that w- would make the fight uh, massively different. The fact that the hostages are present, the rockets, it they they will take their place in history as one of the most effective. In accomplishing the mission, which is very clear, actually, in in, in a lot of urban battles, it's either destroy the enemy, liberate the city. The, The metrics aren't as clear. You have to give Israel credit for the pace in which they've cleared dense urban terrain, the number of Indian combatants they've eliminated, and the civilian harm mitigation steps they've put in place.
1: All right. Well, can't argue with you there. I do think this has been a a, uh, a masterclass, if you will, in, in the way that Israel's conducted itself. Of course, the uh, international condemnation keeps coming. The pressure keeps coming at the UN as well. We'll continue to watch all of that. But in the meantime, I do want to thank you, John Spencer, for taking some time out to speak with us today on the FTD Morning Brief. Thank you. Okay, here's what FTD has on tap for you today. FTD senior fellow and international law expert Ord Khitri has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on the extreme anti-Israel bias of the new chief judge of the International Court of Justice. This judge has twice been a candidate for prime minister of Hezbollah-controlled Lebanon. Ord rightly notes that Washington should treat the court's findings accordingly. My two brilliant colleagues at FDD Center on Military and Political Power, CMPP, H.R. McMaster and Brad Bowman have a new piece in Newsweek where they explain how America's enemies, China, Russia and Iran, are increasingly working together. With Iran and Russia already at war against Ukraine and Israel, Xi Jinping may be mulling his options for Taiwan. We've always got an eye on China here at FDD. And finally, my colleague Andrea Stricker from FTD's nonproliferation program is out with a new research memo detailing Moscow's setbacks at the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Andrea details Russia's diminishing influence at the OPCW, and she recommends ways that Washington and our allies can use leverage to push for the dismantling of Vladimir Putin's chemical weapons program. Okay, that's it for today. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD. And support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org invest. Tune in Friday for another installment of the FDD Morning Brief. My guest will be Amos Yadlin, one of Israel's sharpest minds on Iran. He's probably best known, though, for piloting one of those Israeli fighter jets that struck Saddam Hussein's nuclear facilities in Iraq in 1981. So I'll see you then. Good. As always, I'm Jonathan Chanzer, signing off for FTD.